guys, you're very welcome along to Heartlines to Shane, and this is episode 39. Now, this person is from Tyler originally, he's a businessman, an author, and he's a very keen interest in local history. His name is Sean Bagnell. How are you doing, Sean? I'm great, Shane. How are you? Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Now, tell the listeners a bit about you, uh, Sean. Just tell you, first of all, uh, the first record I have of my family settling in Tala is in 1550. Wow. When, when a certain Ralph Bagnell uh, took a lease on uh, what subsequently became the uh, Archbishop's Palace there. And uh, then I have certainly we've continuous occupation that I can trace and that I know about from about um, that was 15 from about 1635. And uh, farming, uh, first of all, farming up beside Britis, then over in Balnascarney and uh, eventually ending up down at um, Old Ball Killinini. I, I grew up there. I, I, I was the oldest of nine. My father farmed. Um, a lot of that farm is now built on. My brother still owns the, um, the hill farm at Balnascarney, which is now planted with trees. And uh, there are still some of us around living in Balnascorny. Is that where you're brought up? You're brought up, up like born and brain in a Balnascorny direction? Or? No, I was brought up at the crossroads opposite what's now the Old Mill pub. Okay. That shopping yeah. centre was our farmyard. Wow, okay. And did, did you have yeah. a big farm or what size was your farm? Well, there was 55 acres directly across the road from it there. And then there was the uh, the mountain up at Balnascorny where we kept the sheep. That was it, basically. Yeah. And we we milked cows there, and uh, they crossed that crossroads twice a day, and there was never a problem with a car or a bit of traffic. Or anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're brought up around the Old Mill area. Yeah. And you have a keen interest in local history. Like, have you always had that issue, interest in local yeah, history? As I, I said, your family yeah. goes back to the 1550s. I like I I I wrote my first bit on the history of Tala. Uh, I used William Domville Hancock's book at the time for um, a Mochrana Firma project I was involved in, I think in 1967, 68. That sort of, I've had the interest from then. I, but look at, I had to go off and make a living. So I only played with it for, for years. And, and um, then I ended up, um, I think about uh, the 2004 or five or whatever it was, signing up in Minute for their um, postgraduate uh, thing in local history. And um, that's when my interest had to get kind of serious. It, it, part of that research, I became available of all the different sources there were uh, for the history of Tala uh, and and of important information about Tala. So I, I buried myself in that for a few years. I'm still kind of half buried in it because the whole thing still fascinates me how much information there is there. Yeah, and, for me, Tala, like you, you said, you go back. You go, your family goes back a long time. Yeah. Like, I want to focus in particular in Tala Village. You know, there used to be, I know there used to be a train that went through Tala Village that used to go up, up towards Blessington. Well, it was, well, it, well basically it was, it was a morbid name. I think they, it was like the death train or something like that. I don't, I don't know the exact name, but basically the story, the story one was it, like, it was a, it wasn't a very pretty kind of um, uh, direction it was going, you know? Yeah. Um, no, it, it, it actually, you're the first person now that I've heard referred to it as a train. Okay. Because- it's always been referred to as a steam tram. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And uh, you know, when 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 um, when all the a lot of the public transport or a lot of the old private transport networks were um, nationalised, I think it was the 1920s or the 1930s, um, we ended up with Corus Umperaren running the 65 bus to replace that tram. 
and that tram just ran from Terenure to uh, Blessington and on as far as uh, just Poulafuga waterfall. And I suppose that was because people felt, well, there might be extra passengers to be got if there was a beauty spot at the end of the trip. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, and the dam there was only built, I think, about 1938 or 39. So, and there was a very famous waterfall through that channel down under the bridge before that dam was built. Uh, and it was quite a beauty spot. And it was a place that people used to go out to from Dublin on weekends and that sort of stuff. And the tram was extended to there to service that particular market. But um, and, and as you know, Shane, um, the tram had a certain reputation for being unforgiving of pedestrians. And, and it, the morgue became known as a place where um, sometimes people were brought after serious accidents. Uh, that's the pub in Temple Oak. Um, I, I, I don't think there was a tram line, but there was there was public transport on the on the Lucan Road as well. For the same sort of reasons, the Dead Man Murray's became known as the dead man's for that sort of reason, because it was a place that people were brought after accidents. Jeez, yeah, it's, it is it is very, very bleak, isn't it? Fairly bleak, yeah, yeah, yeah. There wasn't the same emphasis then on speed controls and road safety and that sort of stuff. <laughs> so relatively recent. Now, you went, you like, grew up on a farm and then you, you had an interest in local history and, you know, history of Ireland. And then early 2000s you decided to go back and re-educate yourself and that, that's brought and brought on you down a rabbit hole and in a sense so how did the <laughs> yeah well you know you, you never stop learning but that's right that's right yeah. how, how did you uh go about like um compiling this book you you wrote a book about tala from 1835 to 1850 a rural place well the point about it is that um you see one of the things that happened and 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 like it's one of the good things that came from the act of union in 1801 if you like is that um the government became quite scientific about collecting information because they reckoned if they were going to exercise governance, be it good or bad, that they could only do it on the basis of up-to-date solid information. So from 1801 onwards, the amount of surveys done uh, of various aspects of life and of industry and commerce in Ireland and in England is quite colossal. And there were a number of important surveys done in Ireland from 1830 on. Well, there was, yeah, the 1830 on, we'll say. Um, there was the Education Act uh, and there was the, uh, the, the um, Commission on Public Instruction, the Commission of Inquiry on Public Instruction, which I think was 1832 or 33, uh, which, which lists every church and its attendance in every parish in Ireland. It also lists every school and its attendance and the conditions on which people attended in every parish in Ireland, including in Tala. Yeah. And I mean, there's a full list of what we now might regard as head schools there of people running classes in the in in a front room of their private house and charging a couple of pence a week. And that was the that was what head schools became, whatever they might have been earlier in the 18th century. Uh, that then the big inquiry was the uh, poor inquiry, which was conducted between 1834 and 1836. And I mean, there is a, that inquiry sat in 104 or five parishes around Ireland. Um, it sat in a large number of baronies and its, its results run to five and a half thousand pages. And there's huge detail in it from everywhere in Ireland. And, and 
Dr. Burkett was the um, the dispensary doctor in Tala, living in Bonville House, incidentally. He gave he, he gave replies to some of the questions there, which are very telling about the conditions of rural poorer people in Tala. But it was possible from that body of different inquiries, it was possible to construct a well-informed view of uh, a picture of what life was like in Tala. And that's what I set out to do. Manute were happy enough with the way I did that to give me my degree. So I'm, I'm quite happy about that. <laughs> It, it, it was a lot of information and um, it's there and there's other information as well. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because there's a thing about Irish history in some people's minds, Shane. And that is that we kind of, we kind of look on the famine as a starting point. Because during the famine, uh, just at the end of the famine, you had the Young Ireland movement. And it morphed into the, the Fenian movement, the Fenian Brotherhood then in the 1860s and 70s, and then on it, the landlord wars later in the 19th century. And people accept that as the canon of Irish history. And people don't bother asking the question, well, what was like life like, life like before the famine? The answers are there. The, the surveys were done. There's a very good picture of what life was like before the famine. And there's a very good picture, for instance, of, and, and it's, an, it's a subject that fascinates me, of the, the cultural values among the poorer people. Uh, it's also a time when um, the church wasn't uh, everywhere the way it became after 1850 and 1860. And like, for instance, 1834, the public instruction inquiry concluded that um, in a varying range from Wexford up to the north of Donegal, Average church attendance across Ireland was only somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of people in all denominations, not just not just in the Roman denomination or the church, the established church, so that the church didn't have the same influence in people's daily lives. And certainly among the poor, there, there's plenty of and it, it's a fascinating topic. Uh, there's plenty of evidence of um, alternative belief systems emerging and, and certainly in, in alternative values emerging. They give a very different light, uh, picture from what you might expect of what, what life was like for the poor in Ireland. And dare I say it, but the church at that stage was becoming aligned with the middle class. And there's not an awful lot of evidence of the church being significantly involved in the, work, in, in the world of the poor so that the poor were left to their own devices um, in, in terms of belief systems. And it, it all creates a fascinating picture, fascinating picture. And in some ways, uh, sorry, am I talking too much? No, you keep going. In some ways, it has parallels now that as people aren't as connected to one of the formal religions, they evolve their own belief systems, which um, can seem a bit strange, if I can put it that way, certainly non-Orthodox. Yeah, yeah. Now, because the focus is on Tala, yeah, as well as Ireland. Now, you said you focus on the poor. Like, was the perception of Tala like 
kind of what it was back in the 60s in Ireland when, you know, they pushed people out from the, the, the inner city sort of thing out to Tala? Was there still, was there an element of that going on even then? Well, first of all, the parish of Tala, the, the civil parish of Tala, which was the which was the unit, if you like, for mm. all that research and for an awful lot of what was recorded then, the civil parish of Tala included Temple Oak Village. And the civil parish of Tala could best be defined as the Dodder Valley from Temple Oak Village to the top of Kapur, spreading out a certain distance on each side. But that was basically it. So it came in quite close to what later became the city because Temple Oak seems to have been nothing like then what it has since become. Uh, it was it was quite a dead place. And in fact, it, by some measures, it, it was one of the least progressive parts of that entire parish. But 1831, there was a census done. And, 18, and 1961, there was a census done. Mm. And if you take that entire civil parish of Tala, including Temple Oak Village, from 1831 to 1961, the population at in or around four and a half thousand people might have changed by a couple of hundred. Uh, so it's it's a very unchanging place. And the, the, the villages, the, the gatherings of houses stayed small. Uh, the rural population pretty well didn't change. It, it, it would have, in many cases, it was still the same families that were on the land farming it. And it, it, it's just phenomenal that you had 130 years there with no change in population. And then in the mid-1960s, that's when it started to explore, explode. And I mean, I can remember going to school in Terenur, um in the in the late 1950s and the early 1960s at Ballyrone Road being built. So that was farmland. The land in front of um, the novitiate there at uh, Cypress Grove, that was all farmland. And, and that became part of the growth in, in Tala Parish. Now, Tala, it then changed its boundaries and it became broken up into different electoral areas. And, and that, was the, that was the breakup of, of the original civil parish. But um, until that happened, the population of Tala changed little or nothing over 130 years. Yeah, it was. It was. Was it like a, an an industrial change happening in Dublin at the time, where like there was more people like needed to live outside the city, or is there a reason why it just didn't change for that amount of time? Good question. I I don't know when Ernie's chocolate factory started, uh, but three factories. Like I grew up with there being three factories on Belgard Road. And there was very little added to that for years and years. And, and those three factories drew in employees from all around the place. The first one would have been Ernie's. The second one would have been Johnson & Johnson, which was more of a distribution center, I think, than a manufacturing center. And the third one would have been Glen Abbey, who were manufacturing knitwear. It was the Barnes family owned it. Did. And the rest of Cookstown was a farm. Now, Cookstown, at the late 19th century was an army camp. For a brief period at the beginning of the 20th century, it became an army air corps base. So it was, a, it was an airfield. And from 1919 until 1922, it was actually an RAF base uh, when the army air corps became the RAF after the first world war. And I remember it being farmed down into the 1960s. Uh, at one stage in the 19th century, incidentally, it was a race course. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> it was racing there. And if you go back to the Freeman's Journal, now and then you come across these little snippets of the racing results from Cookstown. 
Jeez, that would have been good. But like, because like that's when I go racing, I go to Punchestown or Leprosound. It would be nice to have a racetrack in Tala because Tala, well, now has such a massive population. There would be yeah. a market for it, you know. Cookstown, before it was an industrial estate, was a farm. Before that, it was an airfield. Before that, it was an army base. And before that, it was a race course. Wow. And there's, I haven't come across the news item that confirms it yet, but apparently late in the 19th century, during a race meeting, there was a wooden grandstand that collapsed under the weight of the crowd. Mm. That's that. That's when it stopped being a racetrack and, and yeah. then army occupied it. You know? mm. So Tala has a very mixed history. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it does. Um, because like only like only knew the more recent history because again when I was doing my Tala segment there last year, I spoke to David Kennedy and he's been telling the story of Tala since the since the you know eighties through the echo. That's you echo know? David. Yeah, echo David. Yeah. David was pretty well either in my class or a class in front of me or behind me in, in national school. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think because there wasn't much, as I said, small population, there wasn't many schools. So you probably, no. you probably would, would have went to the same school. There's a good chance you would have went to the same school. Yeah. And and everybody knew everybody. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was that sort of a place, you know. It was a, it was a rural community. And like even up in, when I was growing up, like in the like 80s, 90s, you look over the feet there were still fields and fairhouse where there are houses now you know so like it's mm-hmm. even in the last few years it's, it's changed a lot you know yeah 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 but i set out in that book just to get back to that i set out in that mm. book to get some picture of what life was like pre-famine that, that to from from the available from the the, the well-known ava- available sources at that stage you know and they were there was enough information there to be able to paint a fairly fascinating picture i think you know yeah, definitely. Now you also are you're also involved or have been involved over the years with uh, History Publications Limited. Tell the listeners a bit about what what that does and how did you get involved with this particular um, organization? Um, History Publications publishes a magazine called History Ireland. History Ireland was originally founded and published by, I think it was a Belfast based company. I'm not I'm not too sure, um, but I know that um, about the early 2000s, uh, the very early 2000s. Now, I, I have a different involvement with it now. Uh, Nick Maxwell, who, who uh, runs a company called Wordwell, which publishes an awful lot of, of history and academic books, um, became involved and acquired History Publications Limited from its previous owners. And it, it wasn't in a very healthy position at the time. So a group of us got together and, and managed to raise a small amount of money, which we invested in it, and we kind of relaunched it. And it's been a fascinating thing for me because um, there are very few of us in this life who are privileged to be involved in, and you're going to laugh now, in successful publishing, particularly of magazines. Yeah, yeah. And and. and the world is littered with with the uh, the debris of failed magazines, you know, mm. and this wasn't one of them. And uh, I'm I'm delighted to say that. So we managed to put it on its feet, and um, we we tidied up the content. We we were very scientific about it. We held a number of um, focus group meetings over a couple of years. We responded to them so that so that every time that good information and good suggestions and and um, 
good views emerged from those, we responded uh, and the magazine changed and adapted in accordance with that. And we were very lucky in that Nick Maxwell is quite an enlightened guy when it comes to publishing. And also the magazine had an editor in Tommy Graham. Tommy is quite fabulous. He loves his history and he loves the job. He implemented everything and had a flair for layout content and for the sort of the mix of content that would keep the thing going forward. So um, it's going forward. It's still very successful. I get my six copies a year into the office here and, and um, it's, it's always readable and always interesting. What's the name of the magazine again? I'll, I'll, I'll keep it. Keep mind. Cool. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah. Yeah. It, it produces it's it, it's it's a publisher essentially so it publishes other other books and authors yeah. and... history publications publishes um a couple of other books um mm. it, it published one of essays on 1916 it published a collection of essays on the period 18 1918 1919 and i think there's probably one or two others planned at the end of the decade of centenaries which the magazine has been involved in. But it's part of Wordwell, and Wordwell is um, a very good organisation that publishes a lot of... Um, it also publishes, for instance, Archaeology Ireland, and it publishes an awful lot of archaeology books. It has published an awful lot of the archaeological findings on the various um, motorway uh, projects. It's an interesting uh, collection of publications. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Like, we... It's important to, to know the history and then to look forward as well. Um, so th that was there was there must be there was must be a latent feeling of maybe this is what I should be doing like for the rest of my life, you know, getting involved in history because you were involved in this for well, like a, the best part of 20 years, you know, like as in yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, that must have been the catalyst for you getting back into education and kind of going, look, I may as well use all the knowledge I have and and and, and I can learn more and maybe you know. Uh, share this knowledge with people down the line you know uh, look and and there's a number of other things i've been involved in as well in fact i'm just finishing up a chapter here for a book on um the changes in dublin during the famine and i'm i'm writing a short chapter for it on the changes in Tala. so that will be hopefully that will be published later this year um i still have to write my conclusions page so um <laughs> I, I still have a bit of fun to have with it. <laughs> You'd wonder, I mean, on the west coast of Ireland, it, like people would leave, get one on ships and they'd end up in New York and places like that on the east co east coast of America. You'd wonder where the Irish, the Tala people ended up because Tala people, you know, they, they, they must have travelled as far as England and Australia or did they, did, they, did they just kind of go to America like most people when they left for the famine? I'm just wondering where did they end up, Shane? You've posed a very good question. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we all have our anecdotal stuff and are just wondering on a systematic basis where people ended up. I presume that there would have been a good deal of migration from the Tala area to Britain. Hmm. Um, you know, if you think about it, um, the Bulkley family in Old Bond House were from Anglesey. Okay. Uh, yeah, and uh, and they're coming. They they came. I think Old Bond House was built about sixteen thirty five or thereabouts. And if you think about Old Bond Talla and Glenis Mole, the number of Welsh family names that are there and have been there, and it's it's surmised that they were retainers who came over with the Bulkley family. 
Oh, okay. I don't know if if that connection worked in the other direction as well. I suspect not so much. You know, maybe maybe to some extent it did. Um, I would have, I, I'd suspect that there was a good deal of emigration from Tala to um, to Britain. Mm. And I, I forget the guy's Christian name. What do you call that man, Russell, the journalist? journalist? George Russell or Henry Russell? Or the guy from, from um, Springfield or thereabouts, up near Jobstown. And he became the great, the great um, war, the first great war correspondent. He covered the Crimean War for the Times. He was, he was from Thailand, so that was an example of somebody from one of the families leaving and going to England. Yeah, yeah. And being successful. You know? Yeah, the facts. That was, that was after the fact. And then yeah. on the other yeah. end of the scale, um, in the 60s, when I used to go to New York on a J-1 visa, um, I remember tending bar in the North Bronx, and a fella came in and he started the usual thing of where are you from and all the rest of it. And I told him, and uh, the next thing he came out with this question. Um, you don't remember the point-to-point races at Old Bond, do you? <laughs> <laughs> they were in the old. They were they were in Old Bond in the nineteen fifties. And in my fact, in fact, my father used to lend the field for them, so I knew all about them. But um, here was this old guy who apparently used to go up there and bet on the horses, and before he emigrated to the United States, so there's there's a Tala person going a different direction and I think the Irish are unique around the world in terms of their sense of place and their sense of grabbing to make a connection yeah we we do it everywhere you know are you one of the parts from Wexford or whatever <laughs> it is you know yeah definitely yeah you were saying you went on a J1 visa in the what, the 60s was it yeah in the late 60s oh. yeah Jeez, I, I went on a J1 visa in 2007. I didn't even know the... I, t- I thought that was a new thing. That's been going on forever. I, I, I went in 1967, and I think it might have for the, fir- the first time, and I think that might have been the second or third year of it. Wow. You're talking tens of thousands of, of, of students signing for the J1 visa every year, okay? Whereas back, back in the 60s, there must have been only a very select few people going over, uh, privileged enough to get to opportunity to go and live in... Well, I, I think in 1967 that USI, USIT chartered... There were certainly 10 or 12 flights each direction. Did they really? Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the 0707s, yeah, yeah. And it's funny because um, it was a much more... I'll give you an example. It was a much more innocent age because... Um, I remember the first time I went over was um, in, I think, June 1967 and uh, worked for the work for the summer um, on all the usual sort of jobs that you take in and around New York mm. in those days and came back, I think, the first week in October. And there was one of my fellow students from UCD brought back a beautiful brand new 303 rifle in a beautiful brand new leather case carried it on as hand luggage and put it in the overhead rack where it sat for the entire trip home. And he brought it out and he did whatever he had to do and left the airport with his license and his rifle intact. There's, there's a change. That is crazy. I mean, that was the time around the 60s, you're talking about flights like properly Pan Am and, and like airlines are only kicking off. So like that must be a special time to actually fly, you know, because... The world was not as an, a, a small place as it is today. Like you can fly anywhere. Well, they were Boeing seven oh sevens, by the way, and um, yeah, 
they, 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 the USIT were chartering them from Aer Lingus and then setting a fare for the trip, which was yeah. very, very reasonable compared with the scheduled flight fares. And, um, uh, you know, it, 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 they filled the flights. They had no problem filling the flights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There used to be queues outside the American embassy of people looking for J-1 visas, you know. Yeah, and, and on the other side in New York, I mean, the open arms were there and the jobs were there and, and everybody got work and reconnected with each other and with relatives and did what they could to get accommodation and all that good stuff, you know, but it all worked. It all yeah. worked. Yeah. Grateful. Now, New York is has has a great kind of connection to Ireland and, you know, it's good to the diaspora because well, I went to I went to I went to San Diego. All right. And it's not as it's not as much love for Irish people in but there is more now. I know in like Long Beach is a good yeah. Irish population and uh and was the gaslight district in vogue then? It was, yeah. Uh I didn't really t- I went to it once. I was going down to Tijuana. That was my thing. Every Wednesday. All right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I I um you laugh at this, but it's about 15 years ago now. I played in a rugby tournament in San Diego. A World Golden Oldies Jamboree. Mm. We played on the played our matches actually on the polo fields up at Del Mar. Oh yeah. But we spent many nights in the Gaslight District, and I even had a couple of jars in. Do you remember Horton's Hotel? No, I, I don't. I mean, I was only in downtown. Like I stayed there for the first night, just just as an yeah. a, a client. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, Horton's Hotel was down beside a shopping center in in Midtown, uh, yeah. San Diego, called the and the shopping center was called the Horton Center. But Horton's Hotel is a national monument, yeah, because it's where Wyatt Earp lived out his life after he retired as a sheriff. No way, I didn't know that. Yeah, there you go. San Diego has a great history for like. Um, you know, uh, military, you know, you, uh, the midways yeah. there. Yeah. Um, well, not mil- is it mil- that's not military. It's the Navy. Navy. There you go. Navy. Navy. And also yeah. you got like uh, La Jolla as well. La Jolla is, uh, it's uh, well, it's a more affluent part of town. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, no, I, I actually, I, when, when, when that particular rugby jamboree, you're going, mm. you're going to, you're going to be jealous of me now. When that particular <laughs> rugby jamboree finished, we had, Three two and a half thousand people sat down to the finishing night dinner on the flight deck of the Midway. No way! It's Absolutely, <laughs> and there's some great photographs of it. You know, the tables were spread out among all the aircrafts and helicopters and all the rest of it, but right up on the flight deck of the Midway. Jesus, yeah, you were treated like royalty. That was brilliant. Yeah, and we had we had the pre-dinner drinks was in the hangar deck. Oh no! Check you out. Like the closest I got, I used to work on a cruise ship and I, one of my jobs was, um, we used to have to do like uh, drills. So we yeah. have to do like the command. So like uh, when the ship's in port, uh, one time I, I had to do like the, the fire drill. So like there's ABC drills and all this and that. And I was up on the the bridge. So that was my, that was the closest I got to, to be royalty okay. on board a ship, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which is abs- absolutely fabulous. You know? Yeah. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely is. Oh, San Diego, I, it's one of those places. If I if I could afford it, I definitely live beside the beach, Mission Beach, Pacific Beach. Like yeah. it's such, it's 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 a nicer LA. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's very calm, and the climate is fabulous. Yeah, yeah. We spent, we spent a day in Tijuana. Yeah, and we we drove down Baja uh, about an hour south of Tijuana and had grilled lobsters in one of these in a small village in a, in a sort of a, a a barbecue restaurant overlooking the ocean, and it was a fabulous experience. 
yeah, fabulous yeah. experience you know yeah because it's like you know you look at like california like that's like reclaim mexico or vice versa yeah it is like the southern california is basically like old yeah. mexico so like old town like san diego um the, the baseball team's called the padres that's a spanish yeah. name, you know what i mean so yeah so there's, there's that history yeah. connection is there hmm. now you, you talk you're, you're i know you're going to do you're looking to do a master so you're, you're going to focus on local history and 19th century history is very very much close to your heart yeah yeah uh, I'm, here's a question for you what period in the 19th century ireland would you like to revisit would you, if you had like a time machine and you said look sean i've got a time machine here hop in go on back to that time and, and experience what a good question. Um, I'm still hugely curious about the 1820s and the 1830s. I'm hugely curious about um, the values and the cultural values among the poorer people of that time, because um, I won't say they were primitive, but they were, and I'm looking for a good word here, Shane, <laughs> um, they were very secular. Is the best way I can put it, and and uh, they were secular, and they were. Um, it was almost a folk religion among people, among those people, because um, they had very little connection with any organised religion, and organised religion was concerned with other people in the population other than them. So they 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 were developing their own beliefs. They were developing their own. Um, cultural patterns of existence and very much developing a, a value system that was not mainstream. And I know that a couple of a couple of American academics have actually said, you know, that, that basically what happened Shane, was that along came the famine. They were the poorest of the poor and they were the ones who disappeared out of our landscape between death and emigration. So and then the church, the churches became dominant because you had you had a thing in Ireland called the devotional revolution and you had this development of the middle classes in England and they're just different names for the same thing where people all of a sudden grabbed and clung on to what became defined as middle class respectability. These people weren't there after 1848 and 1849 and some, some American academics have speculated if they were still there what sort of a clash would there have been between them and the more orthodox religion that became established in the 1850s and subsequently? So, you know, some people have said that did the church flourish because an alternative value system died out in the 1840s? And to go back and see that value system and, uh, uh, and to um, examine it and to to do a kind of an anthropological look at it, I think would be fascinating, fascinating yeah, yeah. because it's you know, you get you get hints of it in the writings of people like Busico and 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 some of the late 19th century writers and dramatists. William Carlton does some description of it in his writing. Michael Beams has done some research on the peasants and peasant power and, and that sort of stuff in that period. And there's no doubt there was a culture and a set of cultural values there then that disappeared in the late 19th century. Different time, yeah different time very different and 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 i'd love to see that close up this episode is going to be released it's going to be released before saint patrick's day so i want to i want to I want you to tell the listeners of what your saint patrick's day is or what is saint patrick's day about it's not about patrick uh, patrick was um 
Patrick was quite a complex character, and we know far more about him than people realize. Uh, he was quite a complex character, and in many ways, he was the epitome of the grumpy old man uh, who carried at least one chip on his shoulder all his life. Um, the biggest chip he carried on his shoulder was that um, he felt his education was totally interrupted by his abduction to Ireland. Mm. And he never threw off an inferiority complex over that. The other thing is that he always preached. Part of what he preached was that, um, and and this was part of his uh, chagrin, if you like, at, at his kidnapping. He always preached that um, Christians are exempt from being kidnapped and being made slaves, even though he had been kidnapped as a Christian and made a slave. And uh, there's a famous sort of part of his life where um, Patrick was mainly based in the north and in the west of Ireland. He, he wasn't down the south or the east or that because there was a different guy down there. I think Palladius was his name. But Pat, Patrick, um, the, the thing that people don't realize is that there were pre-Patrician Christian communities on the south coast. And one of the most famous that everybody knows, but they don't realize it's pre-patrician, was um, the community of St. Declan in Ardmore in Waterford. That was pre-patrician. And, and there were three or four other saints in that part of Ireland uh, who, who were all pre-patrician. And Patrick never went down there because his instruction was to go north where the pagans were and see about converting them. But at one stage, um, there was a Christian community that he had converted and that were working away on the coast of Antrim. And a crowd of Christians came over from um, Ayrshire or Clydeside or that part of Scotland and they kidnapped a whole heap of them. First of all, they killed the men and kidnapped the women, both to have them as brides and to have them put them to work in brothels. And uh, Patrick wrote to... Um, the, the, the Christian leader of that community, a guy called Caroticus, and the text of his letter has survived. He rails against Caroticus for kidnapping Christians. And Patrick's anger and everything was directed at the fact that he had, he had always preached that if you became a Christian, you could never be kidnapped and never made a slave. And this guy had proved him a liar. And he was very, very angry about that. And that put two more chips on Patrick's shoulders. He was, he, and and um, he, he, he carried on his life down until 464 when he, when he passed away. But that, that's the real Patrick. Okay. He became our national saint. And at some stage, I don't know when, at some stage he, um, he was transformed into this um, national center of a national pageant, you know? Um, one of the things about Patrick is that um, there were no snakes in Ireland to begin with, so he never banished the snakes. It's taught that he was never a bishop, that at most he was just a priest, and um, a pretty poorly educated priest at that. So he never wore a mitre, he never carried a bishop's staff, and that he would have dressed very, very simply. So, so that um, an awful lot of what we celebrate about Patrick is wrong. But somebody decided that he was going to be our national saint and that St. Patrick's Day was to be our national day. So we celebrate our national day and we glorify Patrick as part of that. Well, I think if you take it as face value, like, like the, the trials and tribulations that came through in his life, that 
that's heroic in itself, no? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting, yeah. Yeah. But also as well, like, the biggest takeaway from this is the man done well, considering he didn't do all that, you know? Consider, like, he, like to become a, a patron saint of a country that everyone who has any bit of Irish in them celebrates to this day. That That's is right. special, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how do you celebrate St. Patrick's Day? Like, well, this year it was different, but pre-pandemic, would you go to parades? Would you stay with family? What's what's St. Patrick's Day for you? Uh, with, with all you know about St. Patrick, but even beyond that, because it, it is it is our national day and it's, it's, it's a day to celebrate being Irish. I mean, no matter what the history of St. Patrick is, it's all about the history of Ireland as well. Um, yeah, um, I try and spend it in the garden at home. I'm a fairly keen gardener and I, I you know, and it's the middle of spring and there's always plenty of work to be done in the garden at, at a, in mid spring. Yeah. Um, there was a time when I used to try and go to the parade every year. Then there was a time when I used to try and watch the parade on TV every year. And, um, it's like a lot of these things then once you've watched it three or four years on the trot you're sort of saying to yourself well there's not enough change from year to year to get me to go the fifth year on the trot you know well but, the, uh, yeah and and to be blown to it's a shame um dublin is not a pleasant day on parade day with the amount of drinking on the streets yeah, yeah. Although I, 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 I agree with you because, but I, I actually I, years ago I actually worked for St. Pa- uh, Patrick's Festival as a volunteer, and that was a great yeah. experience because it gave me a different. Of respect. course, yeah. I got to see. I got to work with all the artists. I got to, like, as you when you're chaperoning the parade, you're standing like right beside them, so you feel uh, you feel all the energy. You see all the, the yeah. bells and whistles. But it was a good experience. But yeah, I mean, mem- do you remember we had the Tala parade like that? That didn't last too long, but it was good because you didn't have to go to town. You didn't have to get the bus in, and the crowds. Look, you know. Over the over the last few years, up until COVID, um, I live just outside Selbridge in North Kildare. Mm. Now, Nace tends to have its parade on Easter Sunday, but there's a succession of parades in North Kildare, and I say it's a succession because you'd have Selbridge has a parade, mm. Minute has a parade, Clane has a parade. There's some bit of a play parade in Salance. There's some bit of a parade in Prosperous. They're all coordinated mm. and sequenced so that the same floats can go from parade to parade over the day. So Clainant is always a particularly good one because it's it's late morning and it's 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 everybody gets to it. But um you 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 can have great fun um with, with those parades. And, and you'll know some of the characters on the floats and, and that sort of stuff, you know. The other thing about the Patrick's Day Parade in Dublin, which I was privileged to do one year, I don't know how I managed it, but I managed to get to the Lord Mayor's Ball that night. And Yeah, go on. And the thing about the Lord Mayor's Ball on Patrick's Night is it's where they talk about the parade and they give out the awards for the best floats and the most original floats and all of that good stuff. So you see the parade in microcosm and it's, it's just fabulous to, 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 to witness all of that. Yeah. So if you want to go again, try and get to that. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. Will. Yeah. It's one of those box ticking exercises. Mm-hmm. Now that's something I didn't expect. I, 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 uh, that's one thing I'm learning um, with each of my guests. There's always something in, uh, there's always something you can learn, you know, especially for, you, you talk, and you'll talk to listeners as well about St. Patrick that a lot of people wouldn't know about, you know, like the St. Patrick that's not really maybe, you know, 
public knowledge or or, or, or or talked about but it's important to be real as well you know but like you can you can you can be absolutely certain he was a real man yeah he did exist he left two or three pieces of writing the monks in Armagh sometime later had access to what he wrote yeah. and they transcribed it into what became known as the book of Armagh ah. and the book of Armagh still exists his original writings have disappeared but we have them quoted in the book of Armagh. So we know what he wrote and we know the tone of what he wrote. And uh, that that's where a lot of our knowledge of the real Patrick comes from. So um, books and manuscripts and so 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 those manuscript books. So so there is a real connection back yeah. to Patrick. There's a particular prayer. Mm. And somebody made a recording of a couple of verses of it called The Cry of the Deer. But it's known as St. Patrick's Breastplate. And in fact, it was written about 250 years after Patrick. Um, and, but a lot of people have said, that, you know, and, and again, it's in creating the myth that this was his favorite pa- prayer. Mm. You know, it's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful piece of poetry. It was written at the height of the Christian era, um, it, it, around about six, 700 AD in Ireland. Uh, but again, it's, its association with Patrick is not true. Mm. And who was it made that record of the cry of the deer? Because that's that's one or two of the verses straight from it, and it's rather beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're you're working with like knowledge or history uh, manuscripts. I mean, if you if you question everything in history, where would you be? You know, history has its place. You know, we you're studying history, so you're learning things, even stories within stories. You know, from people who were not maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, in, at the moment, if you think about all we've been through in the last four, six, eight years, mm. one of the things we've learned, Shane, is that there is a total difference between real truth and emotional truth. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole level on which the history that we celebrate is our emotional truth. Mm. Yeah. And, and sometimes we, 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 we have difficulty in letting that go to have a look at the real story. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Uh, it, we do have, there is a lot of emotion, especially with yeah. our culture and, and our heritage and traditions um, yeah. that we yeah. find hard to let go of, you know, because again, this is Ireland today is totally different, very modern, uh, very forward thinking, trying to be forward thinking, you know, it's, it's hard because it's good to be traditional. You know, it's good to have traditions and heritage and history, but it's also important to kind of go with the, the flow a little bit, you know. It is. And and it's good to have traditions and, and uh, it's good to, um, you know, and at the same time, Shane, you have to approach all of this with an air of skepticism that, that uh, you know, that hmm. you're willing to um, that you're willing to acknowledge that um, maybe there's a harder truth out there that doesn't sit as well with how you want it to be yeah yeah okay. yeah but that's life isn't it you know uh, absolutely <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah true Anyway, Sean, I won't keep you too much longer. Thanks for coming on. I, I took it's been a long time trying to get, get get hold of you. You're a busy, busy man. You're on one board. You're doing this. You're doing that. You've lots of fingers and different pies, you know. <laughs> yeah, and um, so when I lick my fingers, just um, think about the nice sweet pie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Anyway, best of luck with all the studies. Um, I believe you're going to. Go Thanks on. a million, and good to talk to you, Shane. It's been a great pleasure. Yeah. No, it's been more my pleasure as well. And uh, have and uh, as I say, have a good St. Patrick's Day, and uh, and I'll talk to you. Shane, the same to you. Good to talk. All right. Talk to you. All right. Bye. Talk to you. I'll see you. Take it easy. Uh, that was Sean Bagnell again. Wanted to bring it back again, just to go back to you know back to the surf. Run back onto my Tyler segment again, and for a while, and I'm glad he came on for a chat. He's a businessman. He's born and bred in Tyler. He's also an author as well. He wrote a book about Tyler during the 19th century. Once again, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. My name is Shane. This podcast is called Heartlines. Uh, if you did like this episode, please like, share, comment, and subscribe as well. Again, if you're on social media, uh, I'm on Twitter at Heartlines Podcast, and also. Instagram at Heartlines Podcast. If you want to follow, please follow. I post as often as I can. And guys, remember, you're always welcome here on Heartlines. Take it easy. Bye bye.